It's good to be back again tonight and to uh, fellowship with the brethren and to enjoy one another's company once more. Let me turn this on there. I'm always encouraged by those that attend on Sunday night and uh, those who especially are inclined to uh, encourage and reach out and edify and build up the brethren. And I'm glad to see you all here uh, tonight. Richard Dawkins, a professor of biology at New College, published a book in 2006 entitled The God Delusion. Many of you might have seen that on the shelves, uh, maybe garnishing your local bookstore. But in it, he attempts really to undermine the faith of religious people, and really Christians in particular, because of his own views toward God and those who might even follow him. He argues in that book that there is really no real God and a belief in a supreme or sovereign creator is, and I quote, a dangerous superstition. One of his colleagues and respected scientists had this remark. He said, when one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. There is no way that this could be construed as anything other than hostile toward God's people and those that would profess a belief in a sovereign God or creator. As a result of this type of thinking, we might look around and see those prolonged attacks on Christianity that are ever-present, and even God himself. And the idea that God is an absolute ruler or sovereign Lord has diminished in the minds now of even Christians. Because of that continuous assault and this barrage on God and his sovereignty, now even Christians are beginning to fall prey to these ideas that surround people's views concerning who God is. See, a casualty of this view also is the lack of reverence or respect that one might show in the lives of those who are seeking to follow him. You see, this attitude has carried over into the lives of Christians and we are left with many ideas of God's person that are outside the bounds of his own self-definition as seen in the scriptures. I want us tonight to talk about the sovereignty of God. What does it mean? How has God been portrayed and how has that affected our lives? And ultimately, how do we get back to a correct and proper understanding of who God is so that can help mold and fashion and shape our lives as we live here below in this world? The first way God is caricatured is that idea of a grandfather God. Many of us may have grown up with grandparents. Now, I wouldn't want God to be my grandfather necessarily. He was pretty tough on us. But it is that idea that the grandfather is there. He's just a harmless old man. There's nothing about him that we should fear or even revere. And therefore, a manner of living is completely unenforced. He is there to just make sure that the children don't kill themselves, but they have free reign and can do whatever they want. He's that babysitter that comes in at the last minute and really doesn't have to do anything. And this view is common among many of my peers who view God as someone as just a nice old man in the sky and wants everybody to be happy. We talked about Christian moralistic therapeutic deism several weeks back. And the implications of that view on how we understand God uh, here, I believe, is a casualty, or at least the way God is viewed, because of such ideas. There is also the idea that God is this giant, ethereal gumball machine in the sky. If we go back to ancient religion and the way the Greeks portrayed their gods or their deities, and I hate to say it, and it's on the slide, and it was on the slide before I 
ever saw it going on in the media, quid pro quo. So my apologies for that being there. But it is really this for that. We worship God, we take our sacrifices to the deity at the local temple... ...and they are obliged to offer us safekeeping or safety. It is this idea of buying or currying favor from the deities... And many people view God this way. Well, I prayed such and such a prayer. I said this so many times. Or I've done all of these great things. Why hasn't God repaid me in kind? You might talk to your own friends who have these kinds of views. Why is God doing this to me when I've been so great? I've put my quarters in the slot. They make the appeal that God's a giant machine in which we offer praise... And he offers blessing in a very impersonal way. And there's this back and forth understanding, a mutual agreement... ...that as long as we're sending those prayers or those worship songs heavenward... ...whether they are sincere or not... ...then God is obliged to bestow blessing and favor upon me. You might have friends who have this very idea or view. And here's the catch here. There's no attempt at morality or right living... See, those things are completely thrown out the window. You might go back to what Jesus says in John 14, 15. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. He that has my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. So this idea is such that we don't necessarily have to hold up our end of the bargain for moral conduct. God's obliged just because we are offering him, quote, reverence or praise. This idea, again, is wholly self-serving. There's the one that we're all familiar with. And we're coming into that season, right? Now, if you have children, you know that they're looking at this figure saying, that's my man right there. He's going to bring us our stuff. But this idea that God is Santa Claus is the idea that God is strictly there to give us blessings unencumbered. And once again, he's this kind of gracious, benevolent figure. Even we are bad, we won't get a bucket of coal because after all, everyone is bad from time to time, right? How many movies, Christmas movies, have you seen where the bad kid actually got the coal? Not many, right? So ultimately, there's this this repentance at the end and, well, everybody's okay. Even though, you know, you really weren't as good as all these other people, you still get the presents. Do not people view heaven that way? And eternity that way? How many of you have heard the statement made, well, me and God have an arrangement? I have. Anybody else heard that? I see no hands. What kind of group am I hanging around? Uh, I see one. Yeah, me and God have an arrangement. We've got things worked out. Yeah, Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But that doesn't mean that we have the ability to dictate to God how we are to approach him. Nor does that mean that God has to listen to us and how he entreats us. So this idea of this Santa Claus God, it's, it's this guy who's there strictly to bless us, care for us, care for creation, and really no harm or, or bad things will happen to people. And again, this is an outpouring of the idea that we talked about a while back. But then we get the condemning God, <clears throat> waiting there just to make sure that someone doesn't step out of line. And if they do, what's God going to hit them with? The lightning bolt, right? It is that idea that God is there waiting for someone just to do something wrong. And when it's done, God's going to smite them for it. Many have this view, and this is partly why they leave or abandon Christianity altogether. 
Is God a vengeful God? Yes, He is. He will take vengeance on those that don't know Him and who don't obey Him. We see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As we talked about this morning in our Bible class a little bit. That is true. That is an aspect of God. But that's not it. That's not His whole disposition or decorum towards creation. Else you wouldn't be sitting here tonight. Nobody would. Because nobody can meet that perfect standard. But this view hinders people from wanting to approach God or to follow Him. This is also the idea that God's there to condemn men to hell the minute they step out of line. It's that in-again, out-again Christianity. I'm in, I'm out, I'm in and out. John speaks to this in 1 John chapter 1. He says, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son continually cleanses us from all sin or unrighteousness. Brother, as long as we're striving for that mutual relationship with God and seeking that first, as Jesus would say, seek ye first the kingdom of God, then we are found in favor with God as long as we have done and are striving to live the way that He asks. Does that mean that God doesn't make any allowance for sin? Not at all. The blood of Christ, He says, continually cleanses us. But it's not a hokey-pokey religion. We're not in again, out again, in again, out again. We have to abandon God and quit following his precepts completely for that to happen. <clears throat> this is also the idea that God is more pleased with condemnation than with salvation. Uh, I don't know why God would send his son, per John 3.16, if God were more concerned about condemnation than he were salvation. And that verse right there completely deplatforms this idea or this view. But nevertheless, it is very present. And now as we're coming into this postmodern era, we have the idea of a non-interventionist deity. Uh, if you watch any New Age space shows or if you've seen how they do advanced mathematics, astrophysics and different things of that nature, uh, what you'll hear these scientists say from time to time, it's not all the time, but from time to time is that they will say a deity or something is behind or authored the laws that govern space, uh, that authored the mathematics to help us determine all of these things. And so there is this view that God is distant, far off, non-interventionist, almost akin to deism as we talked about a while ago. If there is a God, he has no dealings in the affairs of man. Therefore, there's no reason that reverence or respect should be offered. If it doesn't matter to him, the question is asked, then why does it matter to me? Think moral conduct, think opportunity to do whatever I want, think my escape hole or my loophole in my discussion of God. If these, these caricatures, you may find one or all of these types of views in, your, in the people that you associate with. You might hear those statements or those sentiments. But every one of those takes an attribute of God and expounds it as the only and overarching disposition of God. Now, God is not a quid pro quo God, and I don't want you to assume that I'm saying that just because we offer praise in God, He is obliged to give us anything back, not in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But there are elements of these things that are found. Now, what is the consequence, though, of these ideas? Because these ideas have real consequences in the way we live. And that's got to be understood. When we think about how these things are viewed, how does that affect our lives daily? 
Because these ideas or views toward God, mainly based on ignorance, will give people a reason to look distastefully on Christianity. And that is a problem. Others seek to find a flippant or justification of a flippant approach to God. One, one thing that uh, I heard a while back when I was growing up, I think I was in my teens, late teens, and uh, we had an individual out to our youth group and uh, he was beginning to, or really beginning a prayer. And the way he started it caught me by surprise. He said, dear daddy, daddy, daddy. Oh, daddy. And as he went through the prayer, it was daddy and papa and pet names that children would call their father. And I asked him afterwards why he approached God that way. And he came back with this verse, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Many people have taken that term of endearment and made it something that it was never intended to be. We might look at the other verse, Romans 8 and verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So clearly, Paul is using that word. But is Paul in any way being dismissive of the reverence that is due the God of heaven? I would argue absolutely not. Now, this verse is used oftentimes to say, well, we can be cavalier or flippant in our approach to God. But that is absolutely the furthest thing from the truth. Why? Because this word alone was originally a term of endearment later used as a title and personal name, and it was rarely used in reference to God. Now, in Syriac, this word would be used as a term of endearment to a father, but it in no way was unduly familiar. Think about that. Is that possible? Yes, it is. There was still a modicum of respect and reverence for the father as the head of the household in that word. It is there. And so in Paul using this, what he is noting or connoting for us as he uses this, both in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8, is the fact that we have that closeness, that unity there, but there is still a level of authority that's inherent in that father figure, and reverence and respect is to be paid. As Psalm 111 in verse 9, we have the epithet, holy and reverend is his name. By the way, this is the only time in the biblical text that we find the word reverend used, and who is it in reference to? God. Do you all know a right reverend? Do you all know a good reverend? Do you all know that term in a title sense? I've heard it all my life. And that word is reserved for the God of heaven alone. He says, holy and reverend is his name. But what does that word really mean? You see, the word is from the idea or that word fear. Phobos, we hear, have arachnophobia. Ladies, how many of you are afraid of spiders? I know there's several in my house that are, yeah. That fear, <laughs> that phobia, that's, that's where that term comes from, arachnophobia. So a fear of spiders. That's not a hard word to know. And, and it's something that we use in our daily, daily life. But this is the same word that's inherent in that word. Holy and reverend is his name. God is a sovereign God and he will be feared. And there are sufficient examples for this. Psalm 36, 1, the Bible there says, The transgression of the wicked says within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Why do the wicked transgress God's laws? 
Why do people enact or do the things that they do? Because they don't have a respect or a fear for the God of heaven. Why do people break the law? Because they don't respect the law and they don't have a healthy fear for our laws as they are in this land. Why do people not mind their parents, children? Maybe they forget. Sometimes maybe they don't have a fear of the outcome of not minding their parents. That's got to be instilled within each child, each individual. As they grow and mature, they have to see that evidenced there. There's got to be a healthy fear and respect for God. Why is the way of transgressors hard? Because the end, it leads to death. And he says, the transgression of the wicked tells me that they don't fear God in any way. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing that. Hebrews 11, in verse 17, that great hall of faith that we see uh, evidence for us there, all those figures in the Bible of ages past who have done great things. We see Noah. And the Bible there says, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. What does a reverence and a respect for a sovereign God motivate us to do? It motivates us to act the way God has acted. I'll use an example from my childhood. Uh, my brothers got in a fight. And uh, my mom told them to go outside and not to fight in the house. And that was a big no-no in our house. My mom had a few things around the house that she really cared about that were very sentimental to her. And among them was a small chair that was made for my grandfather by his grandfather. So that would be my great-great-grandfather. But he had cut down the tree, he had planed the lumber, he had built that chair from scratch. He had stained it and given it to my granddad when he was a child to use and to sit in. And my mother had that and she had her dolls in a trunk on the, the front there. And my brothers commenced to fighting and she told them to go outside. She said, I don't care if you beat you yourselves bloody, just get out of my house. I don't want you to break anything. Well, they ignored my mother and did not fear her or what she would do. They forgot that she had access to my father. Um, so they commenced to fighting. And one of them shoved the other one into that chair. And guess what you think happened to a 70 or 80 year old chair? Shattered. I was not in that fight. And that was the one fight that I was so glad I was not a part of growing up. Because what my dad did in order to spank them, he went out got a two-by-six, stuck it in the vice, and planed a handle in it, and went in and wore them out. Now, they were 15, 16, so they could handle it, I suppose, but it was about the size of a cricket paddle. Um, that got their attention. What does a reverence and a respect for God do for us? Think about Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And fire went out from before the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Moses spake unto Aaron, saying, This is that which the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that draw nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron just lost his two children, and now he's being told that he can't even mourn over them. Because the sovereignty of God is something that needs and has to be observed. One cannot dismiss or violate God's commands 
with that kind of attitude and expect to be treated in any way other than what occurred. This is the only instance that we see priests coming up and offering and fire coming down and devouring them as they are at that sacrificial altar. But why? Because they were doing things wrong. God demands our attention in all of those things. And God is to be feared. And we think about this idea of reverence and the fear of a sovereign God. If we had that, how would that shape our views in the way we live from day to day? Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What does he mean by that? He's talking about the fact that we're evangelizing because we know what will happen if people don't respond to the gospel. We know what awaits them. And therefore there is an urgency and a desire to get into the hearts of every man so that they can have the blood of Christ, that gospel. And that's what he says, knowing the terror of the Lord. By the way, that idea of terror there, that's the same root that we find in Psalm 111. In the Septuagint, it is that reverend idea. What is reverence, though? It is really to show honor or devotion to or respect. There was a shirt that once read, Jesus is my homeboy. I saw this and I did a double take and, and had to go back and really check to see if that's really what it said. But to have that kind of disposition toward God and His Christ, that flippant attitude that says, well, we can make light of the sacrifice of Christ, is really to tread the lines of where our reverence ought to be. Jesus is not our homeboy. Jesus is our Savior, Jesus is our Lord, and Jesus is most definitely our King. God and Sovereign, holy and reverend, and for us to have any other kind of view toward him is to go outside of what the scriptures teach in the way God is to be revered. We are to show honor or devotion to or respect to God. Now, we might not actively seek to show the proper reverence that God desires in his people from time to time. It may even just not cross our mind. But this will shape the way we live from day to day. There is a great need for all of us to instill within ourselves a respect and a reverence for His name. Why? Because God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. We think about the reverence of God, the sovereignty of God. One of the greatest aspects of His being is the fact that you and I have a God who has accomplished all things, overcome all odds, so that we can have a relationship at home in heaven with Him one day. I am so frequently reminded of those who look irreverently upon the sacrifice of Christ, might make a flippant response about how we are to entreat God. And it stings or pains the conscience. Because those who know and understand the greatness of God really take umbrage at those things. You and I ought to be striving in our lives each and every day to be developing an understanding of who God is. How do we do that? Well, that is the best question. When we study and we grow in our Christian faith and our walk with Him, we begin to develop a greater appreciation for who the Christ is. We talked a little bit this morning in Revelation chapter 1 
uh, in our Bible class about the greatness of the sovereignty of God, but really is manifest in the person of Christ. And one of the verses that has always stood out to me there is the fact that he had eyes like fire, feet like brass, and a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The text tells us and that he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. It can mean nothing but the word of God. When we go back to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the text tells us there that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we understand that that's what God is going to use to meet out that standard, when we understand that this and knowing this will help us get there, then it will help us go a long way in our relationship with Him. It will help us in our reverence, in our daily lives, in the way we make decisions. And when I say make decisions, I'm talking about the ones that we know to be wrong. That when we're faced with, we choose to do that which is wrong rather than that which is right. We dethrone a sovereign God and we make ourselves Lord of our lives. Because ultimately, that's exactly what happens when we lose respect and reverence for the God of heaven. I hope that as we move into this next year, I know it's not quite time to be bringing lessons on the new year, but we're close. But I hope as we move into this next year, we begin to examine our motives and we begin to help develop ourselves to be more thoughtful, reverent, and respectful of the God of heaven if we haven't up to this point. If we've not given it much thought, if we have, I, I commend you. If there are those in, in the congregation who have very, been very adamant about that, then this isn't for you. But I also pray that we begin to make those decisions that are in keeping with a sovereign God so that no one looks at our life and dismisses God because of the way we are. If you realize tonight that you've not put Christ on in baptism, you've not responded to that great gospel call, we offer you that tonight, and the opportunity stands there for you to come, to be washed in that blood that was offered at Calvary for you. And if you realize tonight that you've been living in such a way that has dethroned that sovereign God, that has not really kept Him as Lord of your life, and you need to make those things known publicly or ask the prayers of the congregation, that avenue is also available for you tonight. If you have any need, won't you come as we stand and sing our song of encouragement.